1: I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I'll be talking to Stephen Bush and George Eaton about the migrant crisis in the Mediterranean and the last days of the Labour leadership election. Then Caroline Crampton joins me and Stephen to talk about Terry Pratchett's final book, It is the first week back for politics after the summer. Parliament ends its summer recess next week, and I'm joined by George Eaton, our politics editor, and Stephen Bush, editor of The Staggers, to talk about it. George, I just want to talk to you first quickly about um, the migrant or refugee situation that's developed over the last couple of days. Um, I know you just tweeted that the petition, as we record this, has gone over 100,000 for it to be debated in the Commons. Cameron's under a lot of changing his stance, which is that we will not take more refugees from the Middle East. Is that likely to remain the case, do you think?
2: I think he will have to move. I mean, whether he moves as far as some such as Yvette Cooper wants, Yvette Cooper's called for Britain to take at least um, 10,000 isn't certain, but I don't think he will be able to make... We can't take more and more refugees, when, of course, the UK has only accepted 216. As you say, the petitions passed 100,000. That's the threshold at which the government has to consider a debate, and and surely it will accept one. Uh, You've had The Sun, the the country's biggest selling paper, and, of course, loyal supporters of... uh, Cameron, who have called for him to uh, U-turn. Uh, Ruth Davidson, the Scottish Conservative leader, has said yeah, this is uh, at odds with uh, British traditions and and if this is a humanitarian emergency, it's not a question of, of migration. And if we don't act, what does that say about us? So, And I even think um, public opinion is often uh, shifted quite quickly by the horrific photos we've seen. Mm-hmm. So I think even the politics of it, which is presumably part of uh, Cameron's uh, considerations, uh, may not be favourable for him.
1: And Stephen, I want to ask you about um, Yvette Cooper's intervention, saying that we should take 10,000 refugees. Because Labour were criticised a lot, not least by you during the election campaign, for things like the mug that said, you know, we need controls on immigration, and for kind of conceding quite a lot of ground to anti-immigration sentiment. Do you think that whoever the next Labour leader is, that that will be a, a
3: tenable position?
1: Or will they just will they try and draw a distinction between migrants, bad, refugees, good? Is that the sort of simple way out of this?
3: I mean, I've actually done a bit of a U-turn on this, in that I still regard... I mean, obviously, the mug was ridiculous from both aesthetic and political reasons. But ultimately, I have looked at all of the numbers from the defeat, because I would love to be able to construct this argument that Labour should have been more, as I see it, honest about the benefits of immigration, less will it... But that but well, unfortunately I can't I cannot make those numbers go together. He mm. probably did lose them to some votes to the Greens in London, Liverpool and Manchester, where they won bumper crops of seeds. It probably made Caroline Lucas's majority a bit bigger in Brighton Pavilion. Did it change the election? No. Um that said I thought it was a brilliant speech. I think one of the strange aspects of this leadership election is this way that um after it's ended effectively, when people are voting and making up their mind, Yvette Cooper has suddenly turned into this brilliant speech giver. She's on two in two weeks. It's yeah, it, it is it is really weird. It feels as if she suddenly realized that there's a leadership contest on and she'd actually quite like to win it. Um it was a brilliant um, a brilliant, brilliant speech. Not as good as her Manchester speech, but but still very good. Um I mean under Corbyn, they will uh, they will have a much more loudly pro-immigration tone. Uh, actually, they would have a more loudly pro-immigration tone under Kendall. Uh, under Cooper, you'd expect them to have to maintain the more hostile tone they have under Miliband. She was a big architect of things like the Mug, mm-hmm. the Pledge. Uh, you know, at the Home Office, she and her team were sort of among the most sceptical of the values of migration, and obviously it was a factor in Ed Balls losing his seat in Morley and Outwood. Yeah, so the, the pessimistic answer is, it may be that you can't at the moment have a line as a Labour Party on migration that allows you to hold together your voters in big cities and voters in small towns that you need to win. It might simply be that there isn't a politician who's able to weld those two things into a winnable coalition. Jeremy Corbyn is speaking very effectively to people in big cities. He's going to do very well in Stoke Newington, where I live. There is no evidence as yet that he will do anything other than flop in small towns.
1: I also think I think Scotland's a really interesting one for this as well, because there is a lot of kind of... But Jeremy Corbyn, you know, people are voting in a, an anti-austerity way in Scotland. Jeremy Corbyn could win back Scotland, which is, I'm afraid, just not an analysis that I buy. There was a poll out this morning there saying that there would be a majority in support of, of independence. Um, you know, it's widely expected next year's Holyrood elections, there will be actually just a total wipeout. the SNP will take everything in the constituency system they'll do so well they won't get topped up by any list MPs and I think at that point probably maybe the English Labour has to and English Welsh Labour has to accept that people aren't voting for the SNP because Labour isn't left-wing enough I don't know I mean George George, is still I think quite an unpopular thing to say in some quarters but I think people voting for the SNP is is about more than being anti-austerity
3: I think actually the good thing about Corbyn uh, winning is, it is forcing a lot of people who have said that the SNP are an anti austerity force for internal political reasons to be more honest about what it is that is going on there. Um, you know, I mean, one, yeah, what is the SNP's signature policy achievement in Holyrood? It's a council tax freeze, which is effectively austerity of exactly the kind Eric Pickles is driving for the Department for the Government, where you just pass the cuts on to local government. And it's, um, and it's a, an expansion of the welfare state to the middle classes. Now, there are strong kind of tactical arguments for things like universal pensions, uh, any of these. It's much harder to get rid of universal services. Mm. Uh, it's not a coincidence and the most enduring bits of New Labour's legacies are paid for bank holidays, paid leave, free museums, three things which are n- used by working class people, they're also used by middle class people, journalists, lawyers, etc, etc.
1: Well, that was um, one of the FT's conclusions about the cuts to councils, is that they had affected, they had fallen incredibly, disproportionately, brutally on a very small number of people, particularly in regards to care budgets. So there are people, the same thing with the bedroom tax, there are a small number of people who ha- whose lives have been absolutely devastated, but for the majority of ratepayers, they've Felt well, absolutely nothing, and in fact, they're very happy about their, their council tax being frozen. George, I know it's fi- it seems so close now. Finally, the Labour leadership result. Um, I mean, I just wanted to check in, really, that uh, we are. I mean, every everything is being written and and talked about at the moment as if Jeremy Corbyn is an absolute dead cert. Is that true?
2: Um, I think it, I'm ninety percent certain that he'll win. Uh, all the polls point that way. Uh, CLP nominations. All of the campaign's canvas returns suggest that he's head on first preferences, even if he doesn't win in the first round, which is possible, uh, though it's quite possible that he will um he'll have a large enough lead to carry him through on on second preferences. And
1: in your column this week you've talked about the the kind of the I suppose what we tend to call the Blairites what we know I suppose people more properly would call the kind of right of the party really. Mm. And uh, there's a great line in it where you sort of talk about you know this is a group of people for whom winning elections is the the mantra this is what they are supposedly offer to the Labour Party and yet they haven't been able to put forward a candidate who can do that. What's the calculation for them post Corbyn victory?
2: Mm. It's very interesting. Uh, of course, being the most ideologically opposed to Corbyn, they initially took a very hostile stance. So you had Trucamuna, Tristram Hunt, Chris Leslie, Emma Reynolds, and others come out quite early after he became the front runner and said we would not serve under him. What's interesting now is now it seems inevitable that he'll win, and um, those sorts of threats um, won't, clearly haven't proved effective in, in stopping him. You've had some who are taking a much more conciliatory stance, so. Chico Amuna said this week in a speech that, um, all MPs should accept the result and support their new leader, which was an olive branch to Corbyn. And he's now saying, were Corbyn to change his stances is on issues such as nuclear disarmament, NATO, the EU, and taxation. So it's quite a long list. I love that bit. I, like, I
1: would, were he to dump pretty
2: much everything he's ever stood for, he might consider serving his shadow cabinet. Now, I don't think there's any chance that Chukwu Amuna will sit in a Corbin shadow cabinet. But I think he's trying to play a smarter game in being seen to at least be prepared to engage with Corbin, And so he can say, we had a discussion, we have too many um, irreconcilable differences, but um, you know I wish him well and I will support him from the back benches while also putting forward you know, my own vision of what Labour should stand mm-hmm. for. Um, he recognises that... Uh, Labour has attracted hundreds of thousands of new supporters. It's for his wing of the party uh, to try and work with them rather than to try and simply oppose them if it ever wants to uh, to win again.
1: And Stephen, what happens with the whip? This has been my cons- uh, my consistent question about what a kind of Corbyn era means when you have the party's most rebellious MP over a course of you know two decades. It's not just that he didn't like New Labour; he was rebelling before New Labour. What, what happens? How does he keep his MPs, MPs in, in line?
3: Um, well, the lesson of Ian Duncan-Smith, who is the closest analogue, although Ian Duncan-Smith you know, was in the Shadow Cabinet before he became leader, is he probably won't. MPs are very reluctant to vote for things that they feel yeah, to show loyalty than they feel has not been shown to them. The big difference in this occasion is I expect he will win a strong um, mandate among members that matters, not because the £3 scheme is illegitimate, although some people think it is, but because um, if MPs fear that they will be deselected if they are too mouthy about Jeremy Corbyn, then they're not going to be... The, the big dynamic, if you are, say, John Woodcock, the MP for Barrow and Furnace, which is where the actual nuclear subs are based, there is nothing that your CLP can do to you, no matter how much they love Corbyn, than the voters aren't going to do... Mm. If Labour goes into the 2020 election saying it will get rid of their jobs, their bases, their, their yada yada. yada. So if you're him, or if you're Westreating as a majority of 500, um, or you know Peter Kyle, who's also one of the MPs elected against the tide, um, majority of about a thousand, I think these those MPs who managed to like campaign their way to victory in 2015 are not going to be that loyal. To be honest, not for ideological reasons, for the same reason that actually. In the, if you look at the 2010 election, you know, Andrew Smith in Oxford East, you know a, a brown in every sense, You know, played out, I voted against this, I voted against that, I didn't stand on this, I will not vote for tuition fees, I don't agree with my manifesto on this. MPs will do what they have to do to survive in safe seats that will mean voting with corbyn in marginal seats that will i imagine unless i'm hugely wrong and corbyn surges and all the polls and hmm. corbyn Mania um, hits middle england that will mean being rebellious uh, but ultimately the voters whether they are voters in clps or voters in constituencies will be the ones who decide
1: well on that note um we've only got one more of these before the result announced i know it feels like a sort of like epic box set but for the moment <laughs> thank you george and stephen
0: Caroline Crampton, and now I'm going to talk to Helen Lewis and Stephen Bush about Terry Pratchett. The context for this being that last week they published the final Discworld novel, uh, The Shepherd's Crown, which is the last we'll ever hear from Granny Weatherwax and Tiffany Aching. Uh, Helen, you've written your column about it in this week's magazine, and it's all on the theme of goodbyes. Yes,
1: exactly. So that's why I'm forcing you to um, to chair this particular one, because I've got, I've got lots of things to get off my chest. The reason I wrote the column, um, and I should say that there are spoilers ahead, um, but... I, actually I don't think it is a spoiler, so um granny Weatherwax dies in in this book, and she's somebody who's introduced in the third discord book Equal rights, which was written in before I was born i think i think it was it was definitely in the nineteen eighties um and she's one of my my possibly my favorite character, but I don't think that her death is a spoiler per se in terms of discussing this because it the way it's dealt with in the book is is really interesting. it is the polar opposite of a kind of george r. r. martin kind of like you know that favourite character, and then suddenly they're gone. Because she, like all witches, has a, as a premonition of her death, it comes to her when she's cleaning the privy, and she cleans her house, she gets everything ready, she marks out where she wants her grave to be in the woods, and she lies down, puts out two coins for the ferryman, and she changes her sign from, I ain't dead to, I I's probably dead. <laughs> um, and, and she dies quietly in, in her sleep. And what I thought was so, Brilliant about the way that it was, it was handled was it was like a real death in that it, it, it didn't, it doesn't mean anything. There's no big point to it. It doesn't actually, it doesn't alter the course of history per se. You know, it's not, it's the opposite of one of those kind of grandiose. It's not of, a plot point. Yeah, something. exactly. Yeah. It is just a thing that happens to people in life and everybody else has to deal with it and go on. And obviously, because she's a very important character, you kind of see the reactions of people all across the, the disc to this. But, Tiffany Aking then kind of inherits her mantle, and again has to repel an invasion by the elves, which was the plot of Lords and Lords and Ladies, and she has to try and live up to to the legacy of Granny Weatherwax. Um, I thought it's um, it, knowing that Terry Pratchett wrote this book when he probably knew it was his last book. I mean, he has a note at the end from Rob Wilkins, his assistant, which said that he would write several different books at, at one time. So. He would dip in and out, so it's it's hard to know that it was you know definitely the final one. But he was diagnosed with this early onset uh, Alzheimer's in two thousand and seven. So ever since then, he felt it was a race against time. Um, Wilkins says that you know he measured every other thing that he did about whether or not like how many writing days was that going to take away away from him because he just had so many things he wants to get down really. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm pretty glad that he he
0: got this one down. Mm. Stephen, I know you're very keen on the Discworld novels. Is Granny Weatherwax your favourite character, or are there other people you like more?
3: No, I think it, it has to... It's either Web, Granny Weatherwax or, um, or Death. Um, but, uh, but the Death books are kind of... The really nice thing about him finishing this one is all of the kind of recurring characters, Vimes, Death, I'm going to forget someone and the internet will get angry with me, had sort of, I think, been, if not finished, had been resolved. It was the Witches... Who yeah. were the only one who had been left, who, you know, if he hadn't written this one, would have been left kind of at a point where you have gone, oh, so, you know, Vimes is now sort of master of all he surveys, top cop, you yeah, know, he's kind of...
1: He's got little Sam, Sybil's got Sam. Scott, the Lady Sybil Hospital for Sick Dragons, like, that's all, yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. that's all resolved. Yeah. Death has had his holiday in Reaper Man and is now back just to to, to yeah. deathing The goblins have been... So we've heard a
3: lot about that, and yes, even Susan, uh, Death's granddaughter, has effectively been married off at the end of piece uh, of time. Uh, so this was the uh, the only one kind of left to finish. And the nice thing about it is, I was terrified when I so I have just got back from holiday, uh, and I so I read it on on, on the holiday. And I was I was terrified that it would be rubbish because. To be honest, raising steam, the one before this, wasn't. It was merged.
1: very stream of consciousness, and I think that's an interesting thing. Like One of the things I've written about in the column is that I don't think I will ever love an author the way I love Terry Pratchett again. You know, there was someone wrote a column once about there were certain novels that ha- needed to have a kind of use by date on them. So, like, if you don't read Catcher in the Rye by the time you're sort of 17, you might as well not bother, really, because. Because it will seem rubbish. Because, yeah, yeah like, in the way that I'm determined I'm never going to go back and watch the. Ex- excellent uh but probably not excellent tv series bottom because I don't think it was actually that good it was just that as a 15 year old that was exactly what I needed in my life but I you know I first read Mort was the first one I read when I think I was probably about 10 or 12 um and it was it was absolutely extraordinary and it was so forward thinking for the time I mean I think that's one of the things that's that's fascinating about you know, fantasy is a, as a as a genre has got so embroiled recently in all these controversies, you know, there's been this stuff about the Hugo Awards, um, and about the the lack of kind of interesting female characters and non white characters. And Terry Pratchett did all that ten years ago, but in a way that wasn't hitting you on the head with stuff. So he Morpork, which is the capital city, is supposed to is is the kind of it is it is a multicultural city. Yes. It's just that he does it with trolls and dwarves and now goblins. Uh, and and he writes about immigration, but he doesn't.
0: He you know he does it through through other species and, and also sort of inter community tension. I have not read as nearly as many books as you guys have, but I have read Thud, which is all about two different the battle the battle yeah. between two different sort of. Uh, Tribes or species, even who have different ideas about how they want to integrate into society, yeah,
1: and he was doing pretty out there stuff on, on gender as well so the, in the in the early books, the idea is that all dwarfs are you know whether or not they're male or female, they all have like great, giant great beards and, and big booming voices and iron boots, and then you get first of all um cheery little bottom who becomes cherry little bottom and watch who decides that she wants to wear like high heeled boots, she wants to like weave her beard attractively, so she decides that she wants to express herself in a in a feminine way, and that 's incredibly. Alienating, and it's one of those things that that's a, a long tradition of science fiction and fantasy going back to things like Ursula Le Guin's um, *Left Hand of Darkness* about actually trying to be, you know trying to think of other alternate conceptions of gender without you know. Whilst that is that is not the plot, but that is just something that happens. Saying that things you take perfectly for granted in the, in this world, what would. What what does creating a world where those things aren't the case? Well, that's, that
0: mm. should I think that's why people get so head up about sci-fi and fantasy is if you're making up a world from scratch, it can have anything you want in it. So why replicate the worst structural problems of our own world? And I think what I like
3: about um, the the kind of Small L liberalism of the Praxis books, apart from Thud, which does I think lay it on a bit thick. Yeah, is, is mostly... I like that one,
1: but it is a bit kind of. And then they, you know, because you, I thought, what? Because so the idea is the premise that there's an old battle that happened between the trolls and the dwarfs that they always refer to, and then you find out at the end that it was all they sort of sat down at a chess match. I think yeah. that's what I'm yeah. kind of coming back to. And it was kind of, and you felt a sense of inevitability about that that ending that actually there would have turned out to be something more to it.
3: And also, it kind of because the dwarfs who are. Effectively, faintly dewy for a lot of the books. Do you think Some, I thought they were like Welsh as well? I'm because they've got, you know, because they, they nag, they've got, I may just be projecting my familial issues here. Um, <laughs> yeah, they kind of, they've got these kind of hierarchical structures, they've got their bread, they, they make golems. Yeah.
1: I suppose that is the point, yeah. because the, the, the way that the immigration is dealt with is that the dwarves are kind of the kind of the good migrant, but the one that, cause there's a great blind one where someone says, is your problem with the dwarfs that they're kind of they're lazy and they don't do anything or that they're coming here and taking all our jobs that you can't put those two things together but so yeah so the the dwarfs are the kind of they're coming over here and taking all our jobs to like Gimlet the guy who makes um, whatever it is that he does but whereas the trolls are scary immigrants in the Mm, sense that they are just much bigger and And they do
3: jobs like being bouncers Uh, yeah. yeah so yeah that was and the slightly weird way was the way that I felt and there were some there were fairly established riffs he was making fun of with the dwarfs and the trolls and fairly established types of prejudice and then it kinda of went, No, nope, now I'm gonna and it, it felt it did feel a bit too um I think yeah, if I was gonna point out when I felt the book started to decline it would probably be thud. Mm-hmm. I think Nightwatch to me is the last great Discworld novel. Um, well,
1: that's. I think that's a really interesting question because if um, so I've had loads of people say to me, "What book should I read?" Because I think when a ca- like a canon is that big, it becomes mm. terrifying because you just think, "Well, am I going to kind of turn I up and not recommend
0: have- to me as someone who's read I think six Disworld? Well, novels. what I said
1: to my um my husband was that I think you should read 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 the City Watch ones as a unit because mm. you go through. So first of all, you have Guards Guards, which is you introduce Samuel vibes. He's a washed up drunk. You know he's useless. The city watch is in total disarray. It can't. You know the streets are incredibly criminal. The patricians is desperately trying to get a grip on this thing. It's got a dragon. The dragon farts. Uh, jobs are good. And then you have Men at Arms, which is all about the invention of a gun and what that brings to the Discworld. And the fact that for for the first time ever, people have a weapon that isn't purely you know exaggerating their muscles. It's a form of power that people can't control, and people find it incredibly seductive. And what that does. And then what's the next one? The next one must be, uh, is it Feet, feet of, of Clay? clay? Yeah. Which is my favorite of all of them, which is exploring the concept of kingship. So you juxtapose um, Captain Carrot, who doesn't want to be king. He has a different, you know, the, the, there's the model of the kind of ideal policeman, which is the man of the city. You know, the, the kind of civic authority versus the golems who try and make themselves a king and drive the king mad with all these things about the, what they want from it. Um and again, is a kind of interrogation of power. And then, is there another one before Nightwatch?
3: Uh, yes, uh, after Feet of Clay, there's Jingo, which is about war and is, I think, yeah, one of the best. And that's kind of when he becomes a duke. And then after that, you have... And that's just quite
1: a, quite a romp, actually, Jingo, because sure. mm. they go off and there's another war and they end up having a massive football match. Um, and then... and then. Uh,
3: the elephant, where he they go, it's basically... That's when... Because one of the nice things is the way that... He occasionally introduced people in fairly broad and he always wanted to kind of get into their world. So having introduced werewolves and vampires earlier on,
1: mm.
3: The Fifth Elephant was kind of one where we sort of went home to see, you know, where, where one of these werewolf characters had grown up. And it kind of, yeah, he kind of both, both sent up and uh, expanded these kind of fantasy cliches and then The Fifth Elephant, and then Nightwatch. And
1: then you get Nightwatch, which takes you back to the origin story of the Patrician, who's by that point a character that you found out a huge amount. So the idea behind the Patrician is that he um, is the ultimate ideal of a benevolent tyrant. He's worked out that what most people want is for tomorrow to be much like today. That's his model of government. Um, and instead of carving up the pie, you grow the pie, which I think actually Labour politicians have now started saying unironically about how we should grow the pie. Um <laughs> And he has a small amount of, of foibles, like he has a, a a clock with an irregular tick-tock, so that by the time that people have waited for 10 minutes in his outer office, they've gone totally mad, because it, you just keep waiting for it, and then it doesn't do it quite at the time that you think it's going to do. And his only other vice, apart from that is, um he does crosswords, and he hangs my Martis upside down in scorpion pits with a sign that says, learn the words, which I'm fully pro. Um But uh, night watches is... I think it's I think you're right it's it is the last great one and it's written in a it's written very much in a minor key. It's very elegiac. Mm. So it's going back to a revolution that happened 20 30 years before in which lots of people died and it's about that idea of what actually happens when you over what happens in a revolution what where what point do it, People, there are people involved in any revolution who have great ideals, but there are also the fixers, you know, the people who do the, who who actually wield the knife or who organize the riot that tipped things off and the kind of hidden machinations of, of history. But I agree with you. It's a really difficult thing for Pratchett fans to deal with because the books did decline. They became, I think he dictated a lot of them and they became a lot more stream of consciousness. Mm. So there are, for the later books, it's more a case of kind of finding things that you previously loved in a in a sort of gushing river of of prose whereas the shepherd's crown i don't know what happened is not like that it does feel like it feels tight and it feels structured it actually feels not quite fleshed out it feels as if someone's written the spine of the book and maybe there would have been more things Well, that's what rob says
0: a bit in the afterword i have read the afterword a bit, where where he says that um probably terry wouldn't have sent this book to the publisher quite yet, there would still have been more meat to put on its bones. Yeah. Although, because of the way he worked, it does still work as a... He didn't write from beginning to end, so it is still a completed story.
3: Yeah, I, I have no idea how uh, Pratchett uh, used to work, but it reminds me a lot of the way that... What Woodhouse used to do is he'd write a page, he'd stick it up on his wall, and he would move it up the wall as he kind of got the kind of, you know, the Woodhousey and things like, you know, ice formed on the butler's upper slopes, mm. that kind of phrase. And um, Douglas Adams, uh, in his uh, forward to *Sunset of Blandings*, which is kind of um, Woodhouse's last novel, and like *The Shepherd's Crown*, it is finished but it's not complete. Mm. He says, "Yeah, well, the, the problem with uh, *Sunset of Blandings* is that not many of the pages would have made it yeah. all the way up to the wall, which I think this one has. But clearly, he 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 started with bone and then added meat later, which means, and actually." There is a more intact skeleton with this one, whereas some of the other ones feel a bit oozy. Yeah. You
1: know, they feel like they have they lots of flesh, but actually not very much mm. support structure. But I think one of the things that's fascinating is how badly they've just they've translated to other media. Um, I've tried several times to watch the TV versions. They made TV versions of the Moist One Lip Pig ones, which again are a nice little self-contained series mm. if you want to start um, somewhere. But they just didn't. They just. I think. I think maybe even it was a it's a budgetary thing. Things that look they look a bit kind of comic and low level yeah, when I've, when you're I've doing seen, it on TV budget. Which... I've
0: seen the Hogfather adaptation, I think Sky did, and it looks rubbish. Mm-hmm. You know, just have, having an entire character who is a kind of non existent astral projection. If you're not going to spend Hollywood money on that, it's just going to look rubbish. But I also don't...
1: I mean, actually, now I've thought about it slightly more. I'm not sure if it even is Hollywood money, because they poured an enormous amount of money into the Golden Compass, which was their Mm. version of the Philip Pullman, and it's still a bit weird. I think there are some genres. So Game of Thrones works on TV because it takes itself incredibly seriously. It's got a very obvious palette. You know, um, you can... It doesn't... Its fantasy elements aren't ridiculous. And that's the problem with... Pratchett books is from the very start, from the, you know, *Life, Fantastic*, and *The Colour of Magic*. It's played with the ridiculousness of fantasy yeah. genre, uh, and it incredibly skillfully. But on TV, when you do have a gollum lurching round and it looks like a sort of, you know, you can see that they've always had a tennis ball on a stick and look into the eyes. Um, that it doesn't. You don't get the the the, the subtlety, I guess, of the
0: pastiche. Mm. So, what happens now to the disc world?
3: Well, I mean, that's the uh, the big sort of fan debate, his daughter is going, well, they've, they expect it will continue the...
1: Yeah, they said that she'll continue to work with adaptations. So Rihanna Pratchett is a very accomplished writer in her own right. She um, worked on the Tomb Raider games, which were the reboot, which were which were really... Well, I mean, a lot better than the plot of the previous team. Raider, and also on a a, a a game called Mirror's Edge. And as she's written for comics and been a journalist as well, so you know she is absolutely. And she's his only child, so she's absolutely sort of steeped in the law. And actually, weirdly, he has always been an author who has been very good at collaboration. Mm-hmm. So he collaborated with Stephen Briggs on um, the plays. There's been the Science of Discworld. There's been these books with Stephen Baxter, the Long Earth series. um Good Omens with good Neil Omen. Gaiman. Good Omens with Neil Gaiman, which I weirdly I've never everyone else absolutely loves and I never really got
0: it's, it's, should I give that another go yeah I think it's worth I, I like the radio yeah. adaptations of it I haven't actually read
3: it but yeah the radio version was really uh, good it's aged surprisingly poorly already in the it A lot of the references, like, oh, you know, tapes, tapes in cars, that's a thing. Uh, But
1: But that's why I think that the Discworld books themselves will age quite well because they exist in a, because it is a completely alternate Mm. universe. And actually, one of the things that's been really interesting to see over, you start essentially with the first books in a pre industrial society, and then a lot of the later ones, particularly the Ankh morpork books, are all about industrialisation. This book is, there's a sort of weird sort of sub part of this book which is all about so the elves hate iron which already came up in lords and ladies because i think they were sort of you know like magret magret um shot one with an iron bolt through the keyhole in the eye and people hit them with crowbars but now there is a railway there is essentially like a kind of rivers of iron running across the disc world um and they have swarf this thing which is basically iron filings that you know they use industrial processes the time like the elves time is is over they can never um, kind of now conquer the diswork because it has become too industrialized. So that's all happening. But you're right. There are no specific. It's never going to be like, you know, Vimes popped a VHS cassette into his player <laughs> and like loaded up home and away. And you'd be like, Oh, this is, this feels really weirdly out of date. Mm-hmm.
0: So is Rihanna Pratchett going to write new books, or it's still un- it's pretty unsure? I mean,
1: he, when he said when he did an interview with Laurie um, Penny, he said, you know, I, I've, she's in charge of my legacy. So I guess it's really up to her what she wants to mm-hmm. do. There has been definitely talk about a, a TV series, um, but there are so ma- I mean, this is the thing that there are so many of them. It feels slightly churlish to kind of complain about there not being more when very few authors have left so many. So many books of such high quality
0: and also as i mean you reference p g woodhouse there um he's one author um agatha christie's another um Ian Fleming who, Ian Fleming, um where the estate has appointed contemporary authors to carry on and I don't think there's been a good one yet. Well, I read
1: that P.G. Woodhouse, the Sebastian folks one, and it reads like someone doing a bad party impression. Because, like you were saying, Stephen, you know, the kind of the upper slopes or the kind of, you know...
0: The rhythm is just off.
1: Uh, or, you know, duchesses were wearing their... What was it? She was wearing... Chair, which was being worn very tight on the hips this season. Yeah. You know those PG Woodhousisms. People tend to copy that. They think if they can come up with a great kind of thing that sounds like a PG Woodhousism, then that's that's it. They've got it nailed. And the problem with the signature of Pratchett, above anything else, is the sheer inventiveness of of, of looking through things at the wrong end of the telescope. It's coming up with things. So, for example, he has his version of Leonardo da Vinci is Leonardo Querm, who. Is tormented by the fact that he comes up with consistently with huge numbers of inventions, almost all of which are completely useless, mm. um, and it requires a huge amount of creativity to actually carry that through and come up with amusing examples of what of what those things would be, and that that's the bit I think anyone else will struggle to replicate. Whereas I think you could take the characters very well, but would you be able to at the kind of granular level?
3: Yeah, I think there's a danger it would end up like the awful Owen Colfer. Um, Hitchhiker's guide. Oh, I didn't read that because I oh, thought it, it, no, it, it, no, it, it's it's bad. Sorry if you are in fact listening to this podcast, or indeed Owen Colfer. <laughs> sorry, yeah. Yeah. sorry, um, but you know that you know it's bad. Um, it it kind of it doesn't have the Adamsite voice, mm. um, and that same ability to kind of go oh this entry, and I think it would be a bit of a shame in some ways because she is such a good writer. I hadn't realised she'd also done Mirror's Ed. That um. It's kind of, it, I think it's a shame to when we kind of like go, no, you must do more of this. And there are so many of them, you know, there are, I hadn't realised, and there's the carpet people, which I haven't read. And we also, we haven't talked about um, the Johnny books,
1: well, see, I, uh, that's why I, this is my thing. So I read Carpet People, which he wrote in two versions. He wrote an original version when he was, like, 19, and then he rewrote it at the age of 40 when he was like, ah, now I actually know how to write. But I haven't read any of Johnny the Dead
3: trilogy. Uh, the, the Johnny books are really good. The Johnny book also has my, uh, my favourite character in Pratchett, Yolas, which at some point on a quiet Friday afternoon I will inflict a piece about Yolas on the internet, so keep your eyes peeled <laughs> for that person.
1: But yeah, so that's my, that's my concluding thought, which is that although um, I can see the temptation to expand the franchise and continue to kind of... Actually, m- uh, most of us could probably just work on a cycle where we just start again at the beginning mm. and, and reread them all through. There is a whole world there to describe. For the rest it. of our lives, yeah. You've been listening to the New Statesman Podcast, presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz you can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons.
3: luxury quality within reach go to quince.com style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order quince.com style trust in politics is broken so can we get uk politics working again that was the last time we were happy 2012 i'm beth rigby sky's political editor join me every week with Labour's jess phillips and conservative peer ruth davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance is completely left politics. Yeah. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.